Hey, all, we need your help. We're hoping to raise $10,000 over the next few months to help cover the costs of a few current and upcoming projects. These include, but are not limited to, a complete redesign of our logo and design work for merchandise with our soon-to-be-announced store. Your donations will also be tax-deductible as we've just turned in the paperwork towards becoming an official nonprofit. Any amount is immensely helpful and we'll personally email each donor a thank you. Absolutely everything we do on this show is to make sure the gospel is heard throughout the world and the barrier of entry into confessional reform theology is as low as possible. So go to our show notes and click the link that says donor box at the top of the page and donate. Now on with the show. Here, I think my direct answer to anyone who criticizes, I, I think the criticism you mentioned, Nick, was it's a, a woke school, or perhaps on the other side, it's a very much a conservative uh, school, way too conservative for our liking. We just invite them to come by and visit us, uh, mm -hmm. meet with us, uh, talk to us about it. I think you'll find uh, on campus a very thoughtful engagement of not only cultural issues, but certainly with deep heart for theological engagement. And it will be very, very difficult to come away from it thinking that somehow we are um, either marinating in cultural left or right, uh, but simply being uh, trying to be faithful to the word that's been taught to us. Welcome to the Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast, a show devoted to bridging the gap to the historic Reformed Christian faith. Listen in as two friends, a layman Nick and a pastor Peter, discuss core doctrines of our confessional traditions with seminary and college professors, seasoned pastors, and more. These seasonal episodes exist to reach those outside the church, those in the pews, behind pulpits, and in the academy with rich truths of Reformed theology, and remind ourselves weekly how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. And today we're on a season six introduction to Reformed theology episode. Perseverance of the Saints is the topic we're going to be talking about today. And as you guys already know, with season six, all the guests uh, are either alumni and or faculty from Westminster Seminary, California. Today, uh, we don't technically have a guest on, but Peter, my co-host, is an alum of Westminster Seminary, California. So he's going to be uh, helping talk about this and uh, standing in for any guests. So he is the esteemed guest today. <laughs> and uh, so we're going to be talking about Perseverance of the Saints, how it ties to uh, reformed and Christian theology and then what it is and what it means and all that good stuff. So as a reminder to go to our show notes, there's a link to Westminster Seminary, California, where Peter graduated from and got his MDiv. And then also other information about how to connect with us, how to watch 
these videos on YouTube, you could subscribe to us there. If you're already watching on YouTube and didn't know that this is actually a podcast, there's a link just to let you guys know there's a link to uh, find this episode via your podcast app. So uh, we're also very active on Twitter, aka X and Instagram. And so check us out on uh, daily and weekly content on there and engagement and then email us and, and all that good stuff. And then a link to find a church to call home. If you don't have a church that you can find, especially if it's reformed or confessional, we can help you out with some resources there. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll jump into this episode and Peter is going to not introduce anybody. If he wants to introduce <laughs> himself, I guess, Peter Bell, my co-host, as you guys already know, <laughs> who he is going to be helping us out with uh perseverance of the saints. Yep. I will be helping us out. This is, this is a funny way to put it for those who are winning. Our title does say Joel Kim and that little dash thingy, or I don't even know what that thing is called. Um, preservation of the saints. We actually have Joel Kim coming on at the end of this episode. We're going to transition to our conversation with him. He talks specifically about Westminster seminary, California, where I graduated from and where he's a president and professor of New Testament. So Nick and I are going to handle the questions, and then you're going to see the world's best transition into our conversation with Joel Kim. So let's mm-hmm. uh, let's do it. Nice. Yeah, and like we said, uh, since you graduated from there, it doesn't actually break any consistency not, no. with what we're doing because all uh, the people are either alumni or professors there. So, And I'm an uh, alum. Yep. Yeah, there you go. So uh perseverance of the saints important doctrine mm-hmm. uh, this is what the the this uh t- episode is titled and um you know we could kick it off asking you know what do believers of the gospel who are the saints we are saints even though that's weird to say i am <laughs> yeah. saint nick and you are saint peter <laughs> yeah yeah even though it's, it's a little too to, close to home for <laughs> yeah even for though we don't feel we don't yeah. feel like saints no. in uh we are by justification saints. Yep. What do we need to be preserved from and for? Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pull up Heidelberg Catechism question answer one because I don't think we've brought mm. that up this season yet. And I don't no. we've already recorded most of season six already. Yeah. And I don't think we touch on it after this, but I think it's pertinent here. So Here's question one. People may have heard the answer or part of the answer, but I'm gonna I'm gonna give the whole question and answer. So Please. question one, yeah. what is your only comfort in life and in death? <clears throat> answer that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful savior Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ by his Holy spirit also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. So I'm going to ask you Nick a question after I answered that. Yeah. This is going to be an obvious question, but kind of a trick question. Do you see the word preservation anywhere in that answer? Technically not. No. But what do you see in the answer? You do see assurance mm-hmm. in the answer. You see Christ assures me or the Holy Spirit assures me um, of eternal life. And it also shows you what we're preserved from. We're preserved from 
And that third to last line also assures me of eternal life. We're preserved from eternal life outside of Christ. Uh, And that's because our sins separate us from Christ. Our sins separate us from a holy God, his holy law that we have broken. And so we're preserved from God's wrath, from Mm. the sin that separates us from God. And then we are preserved for God and Mm. in his Holy Spirit and I think what doesn't get as much play, and I forget who we talked to about this before. Oh, we talked with um, Brandon Ellis on predestination and free will. And I loved how he went about that. And that's essentially how I'm going to go about preservation of the saints. And I want to see what you think about this. I think preservation of saints is far more about assurance Mm -hmm. in your weakest times than it is about and this is not to say it's not about it, but it's not about so much about your election um, as it is about your assurance, even when you sin. What do you think? Absolutely. I mean, it, it uh, storms are going to still come. Um, yeah. the, this this uh, present evil age is still here. Um, even as Christians, we're going to deal with pain, suffering, that thing. What we're preserved four is something eternal mm-hmm. and um our hope what we're looking for and it's only brought to us by the word because of christ's resurrection and ascension um he it's we're preserved because he raised and he's reigning yeah at the right hand of god and he gave us the holy spirit um his finished work on the his finished work is already finished but that's why we are able to be preserved. It's and given the Holy Spirit as a down payment. I feel like you're asking this question, like, what do you see in there? Assurance. Um, yeah. I also see some justification language yep. too. Yep. Um, it's it's because I I think of as our heavenly Father, He's protecting us from what yeah. really matters. And yes, there's going to be pains and sorrows in this present evil age, and those things might help in our sanctification as weird as that sounds, but we're being preserved for something better. Our best days as Christians are in the future (laughs) to come. Um, If you're outside of Christ, your best days right now, (laughs) you're, 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 Mm -hmm. once you face uh, Christ face to face, when you die, if you're outside of Christ uh, that you will see God's wrath. Yeah. Um, I wish preserved. Yeah, I wish when this was talked, when this is talked about, and this is generally speaking, when people think preservation of the saints, they think of what tulip, the the fifth letter of tulip, the P, preservation of the saints, and I think that can sometimes be divorced from what you said, is our justification in Christ, our being raised with Christ, the Holy Spirit that's given to us as the down payment of a future inheritance that we take part of now, but we will not fully enjoy until the consummation of all things. Mm. So sometimes I think when you just say preservation of the saints, um, you can come under the impression that it's somewhat of like an individualistic endeavor. Like it's, it's just me. It's just a saint. It's me who's being preserved. And like your question assumes you're being preserved for something. And it's not just you who are being preserved. It's you're being preserved for God, by God, to God, 
in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, all these things where it's not just it's not just we have blind assurance, but we have assurance that our preservation in Christ is towards our heavenly home. And that heavenly home is in Christ as well. Um, mm. And like you said, it means <clears throat> it means not so much that when you become a Christian and anybody who's listening to this, you can relate and Nick and I can relate to this. But you can know all the doctrine. You can know all the right stuff. You can know that Christ is preserving you right now. But so often it kind of doesn't feel like it. It's it's like I'm still sinning in this body. I still fear in this body um, more often than not, even though I know that Christ has saved me because I know he has paid for my sins and given me his righteousness. It's hard to it's hard to live that way. And preservation is not the what it's not the brain switch that like kind of just live that way, but it says regardless of how you feel, or regardless of what's going on, regardless of what you've done in your past, by trusting in Christ, he has assured you that your feelings are not the ultimate arbiter or judgments of who you are or where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. Cause as little children of his, uh, it can't be dependent on how we feel about things. I mean, yeah. Cause outside in- of preservation of the saints, I mean, when you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, how often are you thinking like, yeah, I'm doing pretty good at this life thing. I'm, right. I'm doing, I'm doing the thing that God has made me to do. Um, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, even if even if life is going fantastic, and there's a documentary going around which I haven't watched yet, but I've I've seen reviews on some of the most famous people on the planet, and their success leaves them hungering for something that is not fleeting. Um, one of the examples is Johnny Manziel, who is a quarterback for Texas A and M ten years ago. Manziel. Lasted. Yeah. Manziel, Manziel, yeah, Manziel, Manziel, however you say his last name. Um, but he's a quarterback for the Browns for two years, I think, and then went to see it like Canadian Football League and all this other stuff. Um, partied, his mind out in college. Everything was going well, seemingly, but he comes out in this documentary and says, I've never been more depressed than when it looked like I was the most happy. And it's, it's it, like, I think it comes to this stuff. It's, it's not so much like what you think or how you feel. It's it's this thing that that is outside of you, this grace of God that is outside of you that assures you like your feelings are temporary, whether they are good or whether they're bad. I think mm. we so often think it's just when bad things happen that we question our faith. But it's even when good things happen, we're like, man, is this as good as it gets? Because this this is fleeting. This even though things going well, um, I'm always striving and shooting for more. Um, Mm -hmm. this is never enough. Yeah. And I think a lot of parents can relate to, as far as like when you have children, you're uh, trying to protect them from harm and bad things. And they, as little kids and babies don't understand that stuff. And they might want to go do something or have their finger in the socket. And you're like, no, 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 don't do that. Yeah. They want things that hurt them and we keep them from doing that whether they cry or not and that's kind of how we are on even a bigger level to god we 
we think we know what's best and we want things and he knows what hurts us. And even if it um, temporarily upsets us or kind of hurts us, he's doing it for a purpose of eternally preserving us. Yeah. And I think too, when you're speaking of Heidelberg catechism, I, I just, what, what I think is brilliant about the Heidelberg is um, outside of Christianity culture in the world, ask these deep questions they think that can't get answered. What is the meaning of life? What's Where do you find comfort? And the Heidelberg <laughs> right out of the gate answers yeah. that stuff. Yeah, And that's the motivation of our show, bridging the gap to just the world, like explaining these Christian doctrines. Like we have the answers culture is running around looking for. I'm going to say something that I don't know if people are going to agree with this. Maybe you won't even agree with this, but I've been doing... People might know, people will know Sam Harris, um, famous atheist, used to be part of like the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse. This is like early 2000s and stuff, debated a ton. Um, And then another guy, Peter Singer, they're kind of the two top like atheistic moral philosophers of this day. And they they come right out and say they 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 feel like they do have the answers for this stuff. Um, Like they're they're not so much wondering. But I, I think they they say they have the answers, but they're like they can't agree on where do these answers come from. Um, they like they they know okay we um, we're heading towards like they think we're heading towards some like progressively better society. Things are always going to get better. We have to work. We have to do all this stuff. Um, so it takes a lot of work. There's no question about that. And but you always wonder like, well, what's the point of all this stuff or like, why, like, why should we even work towards this better progress society, all that stuff? Um, I think, I think culture does give us answers, but culture can't back up those answers. It it says, okay, um, here's, here's what your purpose is. Here's why you exist um, to do something for yourself, to build up yourself, to preserve your name. I think preservation of the saints for reformed Christians and I preached on this a little while ago is, is probably culturally speaking, it's like preservation of your legacy. That's like a, maybe quote unquote, a secular way of doing this. It's preserve your name, preserve your legacy, preserve who you are. Uh, make sure you're known, make sure, make sure you're not forgotten. I think there is it. I think there is a doctrine of preservation in society, but it's certainly not preservation amidst everything else that's going on, but preservation of you, of who you are. And it's not lasting. I mean, they, no. they might think it is a moment, but well, the most lasting they can be. And I've, I've heard this from so many and it's starting to starting to stick with me. It is um, your lastingness is as long as somebody remembers you. And I, I hear that so often. I read that so often where it's like, people will judge you. Um, like uh, the thing I keep on hearing, we'll move on after this to the next mm-hmm. question. Um, I keep on hearing it's how will later generations judge the actions that we have today? So there's some, there's an there's an understanding of judgment, but it's always the generations after us who judge our current actions. Or it's your like you are preserved through somebody else's memory. But mm. I'll ask anybody, and I'll ask you, like, who's the furthest back you have a memory of in your family? And it's mm. probably not too far back. And even that memory is gonna fade. And so there's a preservation, culturally speaking, but it's a fading preservation. And the goal is to 
to increase that preservation as long as possible. Yeah, and as as much as we like this movie, it's incredibly in in not correct as Coco. <laughs> it reminds <laughs> me of the movie Coco. Yeah, yeah. Um, and with the afterlife, and they yep. really only last as long as their family remembers yep. them. I, so I think there is a doctrine of preservation of the saints, culturally speaking, but it is as long as somebody remembers you, and it is not very long. No. So uh, to sum up the answer were preserved from his wrath, God's wrath, and were preserved for his glory. We're going to be in heaven. We're we yep. got the down payment of assurance of pardon. We're we're saved on this side of death. Like we, while we're living right now, we know where we will end up. Yep. In our you know based on our faith in Christ. So uh, we're in Christ. So we're preserved for him and we're going to spend eternity with him. So that's what we're preserved for. Yep. We're preserved from God's wrath. Yep. Um, okay, cool. So next question. Uh, Perseverance of the saints is often ripped out of context in its robust confessionally reformed heritage. We talked a little bit, we mentioned TULIP. Yep. Um, often referred acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P for you guys that, uh, don't know that this Calvinist doctrine that <laughs> yeah. people automatically think Calvin equals only TULIP. Yep. Uh, how does situating the doctrine within the broader context of confessional theology aid our understanding of it? Yeah. So I think, I think understanding the covenantal structure of our faith of reformed theology, covenant theology, reformed theology going together. When somebody first comes to Calvinism, they likely come through tulip or hearing Calvin's name, or they hear limited atonement, they hear preservation, whatever it may be, or total depravity. But it tends to be like you can say, like, oh, I'm a Calvinist because I'm like I'm a tulip person, and which is a great entryway. I'm not I'm not kind of denigrating that, but it does get ripped out of the covenantal context. It does get ripped out from the covenant of redemption where the father promises a people to the son and the son says, I will do all work necessary, render all obedience necessary for this people. And he is under the covenant of works. Christ is under the covenant of works in his earthly ministry. Man is given the covenant of works in Genesis 1 and 2, and then throughout human history, and um, those who are outside of Christ are still under the covenant of works to this day. But when we rip Tulip out of our covenantal context, we don't understand the undergirdings of who preserves us, how he preserves us, why he preserves us, what he preserves us from, and I think more particularly so what he, like the last question, what he preserves us towards or for it is in this covenantal undergirding of the father, son, Holy spirit, how that plays out in history. And so our preservation is not just a con- contextless preservation of us without any other merit, like just saying, Oh, it's his grace that preserves us. Yes, of course this is grace, but like he lived a life that we should have lived. He rendered obedience that we should have rendered. He suffered the curse that we should have suffered under and the life that he lived, the obedience that he rendered, the curse that he suffered under and his resurrection um, as a vindication of a life that he had lived. That's what preserves us. 
And when we rip mm-hmm. out tulip from our covenantal reform context, it can it can sometimes seem we talked about this, I forget with who, but it can sometimes seem like we are just wretched sinners who need to be saved. Like, no, we were created good under the covenant of works, able to keep the covenant of works. Uh, plan before the foundations of the world in the covenant of redemption, we fell. And then his obedience, his covenant curse bearing obedience, his, his, uh, his life of perfect righteousness. That's what preserves us. So hopefully that helps a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be able to add anything really, and I don't want to overcomplicate it, but I want to make sure people. Yeah. Maybe like bring know. it down to like a lay person's level. Like how, how do you, how do you think like when you first came into a tulip and now how you think of preservation of the saints? Well, just going back, uh, zooming out a bit, I think you were mentioning a covenantal framework of the Bible is incredibly helpful, um, uh, for understanding scripture. Um, so I think the first step actually to understand maybe what Calvin says and tulip and all that stuff would go back to scripture and look at the scripture covenantally. Mm-hmm. And then it uh, connects some dots. And I think also like you're saying, we're, we were created good, but that means we were created good. Um, as Adam was our federal head pre fall yep. yep. and we fell in Adam. So I think I want to distinct, make sure people understand yep. that clearly is we right now, you yeah. know, and, and whatever, what year you were born. Yeah. We would have been um, preserved in Adam had Adam obeyed. We would have been preserved in the garden. That garden would have stretched out, covered the land. But now that like he, like you said, that he fell, we are preserved under wrath. We are preserved under the covenant curse. Yeah. So after the fall, everyone is born with original sin. Yeah. Um, And that's because we fell with Adam Yep, and we are born in Adam. Mm-hmm. Um, if 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 Adam did uh, what he was supposed to do, um, we would have not been. We were no matter what, we're born in covenant of works. So yep. if Adam hypothetically didn't ever sin and he was yep. obedient and all that stuff, we would have been born in covenant of works. There would have yep. been no need for covenant of nope. um, uh, yeah. grace. And um, things, but this isn't denying. So what you're explaining isn't denying um, original sin. No. And it's also um, not denying also uh, the Providence episode, we said, because God knew. Yeah. Because I could see some people being like, oh, God uh, made a mistake and, and he didn't know that Adam would sin. But in God's Providence, he knew that uh, in, in his uh, eternal wisdom, he created Adam. He knew knowing... that Adam would he knew that we would fall in Adam, which is why yeah. we are what's called tri-covenantal, covenant yeah. redemption, covenant works, covenant grace, where he would institute, he would um, place the covenant of grace in Genesis 3 as mm-hmm. a response to Adam's failure in the covenant of works. And like you were saying, and I think it's a big point before we move into the next next question. I think also contextless outside of confessional covenantal reform theology i think people think that outside of preservation of the saints there is no preservation and i want to kind of buck against this no there actually is preservation there's preservation under wrath and there's preservation under grace it's you're Mm -hmm. not preserved 
as saints under the covenant of grace, under the sure righteousness, obedience of Christ that that is yours, that he is preserving you for new creation with him, you are being preserved under wrath. So it's not Mm -hmm. like some are preserved under grace and then others are just kind of free floating out there. It's everyone's being preserved. It's just who are you being preserved by and preserved towards? Mm -hmm. And I think outside of covenantal reform theology, I think that point tends to get a little missed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one bow on that too would be, uh, and this is also uh, looked at as a reformed and Calvinistic doctrine, even though it is biblically, but uh, elect. And it kind of talks like God knows who is elect children before uh, based on the covenant of redemption. Yeah. uh, Eternally, eternally, he knows he gives the, he gives the elect to the son and saying, this is, this is yours. You must render obedience so that you can, take these people and preserve them. Yeah. And so that ties into it because he already knows every single person that will go to heaven, every single person that's saved. Now that that's where the church sometimes gets confused is like, that is called the invisible church. God knows all the people that are his. Yeah. We, we are limited on that knowledge. Preachers are limited and everybody's limited. You have no idea. I mean, you can only go off of confession. If somebody confesses Christ, then that's what you go off of. So we really just see the visible church, you know, who's yeah. who going in and out of church. And, Which does and, not equal necessarily the invisible church. Right. So he's preserving his elect. Yeah. And um, I wanted to make sure people Which know Which doesn't mean the, the non-elect church. aren't being preserved. They're just being preserved for wrath. They're being preserved right. under the curse. As you probably know, we talk a lot about Westminster Seminary, California on here. I can't even begin to tell you the impact this institution has had on my faith, my family, and the ministry the Lord has entrusted me with. If you feel called to serve the church and want the most rigorous training for gospel ministry around, consider coming to Westminster Seminary, California, a confessionally reformed institution in sunny San Diego that offers master's degrees in biblical and theological studies, historical theology, and divinity. Westminster's approach to ministry education emphasizes a mastery of the original biblical languages, maintaining a small student-to-professor ratio, a laser focus on face-to-face education coupled with an understanding of the importance of having pastor-scholars with decades of ministry experience train the next generation of servant leaders for the Church of Jesus Christ. If this interests you, and I hope it does, call Westminster today at 888-480-8474 to talk to an admissions counselor or visit www.wscal.edu. Again, call Westminster Seminary California today at 888-480-8474 or log on to www.wscal.edu, which will all be available in our show notes. Westminster Seminary California, for Christ, his gospel, and his church. So this is kind of a, yeah, this ties into the predestination uh, conversation as well. So this is uh, the next one. Next question would be the canons of Dort. Uh, That has a main, a final main point of doctrine is that we are preserved by God in a life of faith and repentance, seeking to continually turn 
from sin and our Savior. So we're talking about sanctification, right? Mm -hmm. um, assurance of salvation is laid out in this final point. How can the assurance of salvation be explained to both someone who is not a Christian and to someone who is? Yeah, I think, like I said in the beginning, like you said, I think this is possibly the biggest benefit of preservation of the saints, at least in this temporary old creation. And that's, that's assurance. Um, something you've talked about, something I've talked about, like how can I be assured that I'm a Christian? Um, and I, that's a direct benefit from the doctrine of preservation of the saints. So pulling up um, Canna's Dort, I'm going to go, I'm right on it. So Article 9 and Article 10, I'm going to read. Actually, I'm going to read Article 9, Article 10, and Article 11. So I know okay. it's a lot, but I think this is going to help. Article 9, the assurance of this preservation. This is Head of Doctrine 5. Preserve, 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 perseverance of the saints. Even I have a hard time pronouncing this. Yeah. So concerning this preservation of those chosen to salvation and concerning the preser per perseverance of true believers in faith, believers themselves can and do become assured. Notice how it says become assured. It's not like an instant assurance. Like the second you're saved, like, oh my gosh, I have all this assurance. It's, it's like this growth in assurance with the measure of their faith by which they firmly believe that they are and always will remain true and living members of the church and that they have forgiveness of sins, eternal life. So a quick little comment article. And I noticed too, it doesn't say that their assurance is tied to their lessening of their sin. It doesn't say the less you sin, the better assured you can be notice how it ends article nine it says and that they have forgiveness of sins and eternal life so what does that assume that you're going to keep sinning that that sin is going to keep you from uh, knowing that i have eternal life it says assurance means that you know i have forgiveness of sins it means that you know i'm a sinner that i'm going to continue sinning but by believing in christ which means he continually forgives me for my sin he has forgiven me and he will forgive me of my sins. It's not like uh, he initially forgives me and then he waits for a little bit until I kind of pr prove my, my, uh, my preservation, my preserve preservation or preservation. And then he assures me more. It is no, it is. He continually forgives, which means I'm going to continually sin. It uh, doesn't mean, and I don't want people to hear me wrong. Doesn't mean that Christians don't sin less. I don't want to, I don't want to sound like that. It's, it's possible. Christians could sin less. Um, of course, as we are further and further sanctified in this life, I think there is there's room to say, yeah, we might sin less, but assurance is not tied to how often or not you sin. And I think I love how the article nine says it is marked by forgiveness of sins again. So that's a little little side point. So article 10 ground of this assurance. So we have assurance. Now we have ground. Accordingly, this assurance is not derived from some private revelation beyond or outside the word but from faith in the promises of God. So notice it doesn't say, but from your faith that you have assurance, but faith in this outside thing, the promises of God, which is very plentifully revealed in his word for our comfort from the testimony Romans eight of the Holy spirit testifying with our spirit that we are God's children and heirs. And finally, from a serious and holy pursuit of a clear conscience and of good works. And if God's chosen ones in this world do not have this well-founded comfort that the victory will be theirs, and this reliable guarantee of eternal glory, they would be of all people most miserable. So again, I already emphasized that in the middle 
but it's not my faith. It's not your faith alone that assures you. It's like, because I have faith, therefore I'm assured. It's because I have faith in the promises of God, which he has plentifully revealed. So it's, I don't have assurance because I have faith. That's that's not where my assurance lies. My assurance lies because of the promises of God. So it takes you outside of your own feelings. That's how the article even starts. It's not just like me, myself, and I, I feel these things. And the greater I feel my faith, the bigger I feel my faith, the more I pray. That's how my assurance is grounded. It is my assurance is grounded outside of my feelings, outside of my my, my thoughts, outside of who I think I am. It is It is grounded in the promises of God. And then last article, there's more after this, but I think this is this is the last one I think really hits home. And this is doubts concerning this assurance. Because you can look at the first two, the assurance and ground of this assurance and say like, but you can still say like, well, how do I know? Like, how do I know I don't believe this falsely? How do I know when I'm sitting more that I'm actually still saved? And that's where Heidelberg Catechism in Article 11 helps you. It says, meanwhile, I don't know how to break uh, Canons of Dort. Meanwhile, scripture testifies that believers have to contend in this life with various doubts of the flesh and that under severe temptation, they do not always experience this full assurance of faith and certainty of perseverance. But God, the father of all comfort from Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, does not let them be tempted beyond what they can bear. But with the temptation, he also provides a way out. By the Holy Spirit revives in them the assurance of this perseverance. So before I I end and and leave it over to you, I I, just, I love how it grounds your assurance and your preservation, not in your subjective feelings of faith, not in how well you did this last week, not on how well you disciplined your kids, how well your Bible reading, how well your prayer reading. If you missed that opportunity to evangelize with your friend. If you bit back at your wife, your husband, your friend, whoever it is, if you lied at work, whatever, it, your preservation does not is not grounded upon your subjective feelings or how you performed. It is grounded in the promises of God in which you have faith in that those promises are yours. And that assurance will wax and wane. And so it's not too dissimilar from faith where it's not the amount of faith you have it is that you have faith the same thing with assurance it is the tiniest little bit of assurance is still assurance as much as somebody who has the biggest amount of assurance Hmm. yeah a few things pop out with this um if i could say um becoming a reformed christian yeah and i was christian before i was reformed but i think the (laughs) thing that helped uh, me the most with clarifying scripture, the best through reform theology is assurance. Yeah. I think it's changed my, uh, comfort and, uh, joy and, uh, in Christ. Um, and that joy does is a powerful word. Cause it doesn't mean I'm always, uh, on cloud nine happy every day. No, <laughs> certainly it, not. It, joy equals my, my hope in Christ. Yeah. Um, and also, um, so I know for sure, right? And that's where we can live in gratitude. Yeah. Knowing that salvation is. Sorry, keep going. Uh, I was just like saying, you know, living in gratitude, knowing that we aren't able to add anything. Thank goodness. Cause yeah. our, our, gra- not even so, add anything. We're not even able to take it away. 
Right. And our works really after once you're saved, your works are really horizontal to your neighbor. You're yeah. you, God is the creator of everything. He doesn't need your yeah, your good stuff. You're already his. But he tells Israel, he tells David, like, what could you possibly give me that I don't already have? Yeah. So your 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 good works, if you really want to like look at your good works, uh, it's really horizontal for your neighbor. But salvation is an objective truth. Yeah. And it's not it, because of the work of Christ, not us. Yeah. So, so, so salvation, we help. Salvation is an objective truth, but we have subject have subjective feelings about yeah. our objective salvation. Yeah. And so I don't want people to come around and think, well, like, how do I make my subjective feelings objective? It's not your feelings. But it is knowing that my like Article Eleven of of Head of Doctrine Five says your feelings will wax and wane about the objective truth. That doesn't change the objective objective truth about salvation. It means you will change. You mm. will like you will have good times. You will have bad times. You will have high times. You'll have low times. But that doesn't change the objective truth, which is why you can't place preservation why you can't place assurance on your feelings why you can't place it on your subjectivity or think my feelings my subjective feelings whatever it is changes the objective promise it is the objective promise that's what grounds my subjective feelings and though mm-hmm. i wax and wane i know that the promises of god don't wax and wane that they, they don't move they don't falter that they're true regardless although i myself may have doubts the promise never has doubts Mm -hmm. so i think like you need to distinguish those two things it's not just i think it's easy for people to say like oh like god's promise is true like of course it's true but like as you know and as i like I, i don't always think that i don't always think when on my lowest days like, oh, God has, God has saved me. God has preserved me. That's that's not how I think. I'll just mm. leave that out there. Like, I, maybe it doesn't sound pious or good, but like, I don't always think they're true. That's just like flat honest. But that doesn't change the fact that they're true. That doesn't fa- change the fact that objectively that they are true. So I want to distinguish without saying um, that you can have assurance, but that assurance in your preservation, because that comes from you, your feelings, that will change. Yeah, and it's also important to note um, we are we live in a present evil age in a fallen world. So yeah. even as justified Christians, we can overcomplicate and uh, overcomplicate even the gospel and understand. And it, a lot of stuff is distorted. Our hearts are bad hearts. Yeah, <laughs> and so <laughs> so even as justified, true, uh, saved people, we sometimes have blurry vision of of what is going on because I, I would even of, strengthen i wouldn't say sometimes i'm gonna say we pretty much always, always. have yeah until we're, until we're until we're in heaven after this life and in, in glorified state uh we no matter what all the time yeah. have blurred vision of that and so um just because yeah. so this this this, this the, what you're explaining with the cannons door really goes into we always hear this hey uh peter i uh, I'm a Christian, but you know, I struggle with X, Y, Z. And I, we hear that all the time. I struggle with, I struggle, but guess what? Your recognition of your struggling because you're not cozying up to sin and friend to sin that 
alone shows you that you belong to Christ. You're not a slave to sin anymore. You're not yeah. identified by your sin. You have a nat- you have a rebellion. You you're rebelling against your sin, even though you're still sinning. So right yeah. now, as a justified uh, person, you are now a slave to Christ, and your identity is in Him, and that's why you're not liking your sin. If I could end with one more thing before we move on, Good. I think it's just important. Is uh, Romans eight? Uh, there's now there there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. All right, so uh, going on to the next one, Westminster Confession of Faith 17 of the Perseverance of the Saints lays out three points that cover how an internal, eternally elected person cannot lose his or her salvation, however, can bring temporal judgments from God upon themselves through grievous sins, including uh, even hardening of one's heart at a time. Um, can you go ahead and ex- uh, expand on this and how we aren't slaves to sin as saints, but we still will sin and suffer the consequences during this life? Yeah, I like how you put that question. Um, and so let me read the uh, the three articles of chapter 17 of the mm-hmm. perseverance of the saints to help us. So first article, they whom God has accepted in his beloved effectually called and sanctified by his spirit can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternal, eternally saved. And so notice a few little things. Notice how it says can neither totally nor finally fall away. So what does that assume? So when the, the divines are framing the Westminster confession, it assumes that you can, in a sense, like veer towards falling away. It assumes like they're like, like you're going to feel like you're falling away. You're going to feel like, hey, I'm not sure if I'm coming back. I'm not sure. Um, I'm I'm falling pretty hard in this. I'm feeling pretty pretty enslaved to sin right now. Um, but it says totally or finally. So it means that you will feel like you're getting towards that, for lack of better ways. Like you will feel like I'm I'm pretty far down the deep end right now. Uh, I'm pretty in the depths of of sin and despair. Um, it assumes that, but it says you can't totally or finally fall into this that's that's the first little point second article this perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will but upon the immutability which means it can't change of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of god the father upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of jesus christ the abiding of the spirit and of the seed of god within them and the nature of the covenant of grace from all which arises also the certainty and infallibility thereof. So it grounds your preservation in the unchangeableness of God. So when God elects you because God is who he is, that election cannot 
fall because God's decision cannot change. God, when he pronounces that you are justified and righteous in Christ, he cannot go back upon his word, nor can his word change because God cannot change. And so if you have a strong doctrine of God, your Mm -hmm. doctrine of perseverance of the saints will correspondingly be strong as well. And it also says upon the efficacy of the merits and intercession of Jesus Christ. I think this tends to go along with the general conception that Jesus worked and ministered during his earthly life, but he's kind of done until he comes back again. We're like, he's did the work and now he's just kind of sitting back in his easy chair, waiting for the father to say, Hey, go back in there and, and go take the church. But it's saying, no, your preservation is a upon the unchangeability of God's decree and B, because Christ right now is interceding for you and me. He is praying for you and me. He's He is in heaven at God's right hand, preserving you. It's not just some outside thing that's preserving you. It is God's decree through Christ's intercession that Christ is continually interceding, continually praying for you, continually pleading for you. That's what keeps you preserved. And lastly, Article 3 Nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan in the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, which is what you were just talking about, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins, and for a time, continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened, and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves." Uh, I gotta admit, this hits this this hits pretty deep home, and I'm I'm sure this hits for you and a lot of our listeners too. It's um, it can sure feel like I am still a slave to sin, mm-hmm. and I'm sure for you it can still feel like you're still a slave. Like you're like you're going to back talk. You're gonna have lust. You're gonna like there's there's a lot of stuff that we're still gonna do that you look back at the promises like are those really actually true of me? Because I'm in the midst of a deep, dark valley, and I have been for a long stinking time. When am I going to feel not a slave to sin and a slave to Christ? And I like how you started this. When you are a slave to Christ, that especially in this old creation, this old decaying creation that we're currently in right now, we are still in the throes of death and sin because we ourselves are in this corrupt body. It doesn't mean the body is bad. It just means it's corrupt. It's been corrupted. The good body has been corrupted. Um, so we're still going to do stupid stuff. We're still going to think horribly sinful stuff. We're still going to do sinful stuff. And we're still going to have judgments in this world because we do stupid stuff. But that's why... The doctrine of the preservation of the saints, God's unchangeable decree, not relying upon your subjective feelings, your waxing and waning of your own righteousness, your own decisions, is thank God it doesn't rely upon how I do. Mm. So good. Wow. I'd want people to maybe pause and 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 re-listen to Westminster Confession Faith chapter 17, those three articles, those are yeah. so good. And that's going into like introduction reform theology. 
um, that explains scripture so well. Yeah. And that's the point of it. So you're going back to, you're asking me, you know, how this becoming reformed has helped. And I would even go back further and yes, the confessions are helpful to yeah. explain. I think in something you knocked on was really good is, is the doctrine of God. Yep. I think everyone, there's a lot of good stuff people are learning, but I think, mm -hmm. I think if we go back and we make our foundation, the first thing to really first doctrine to really go into is the doctrine of God, yep. you know, who, who the, who the Trinity is and, and, Understanding the creator-creature distinction. Mm -hmm. I think once we understand who God is and who we are, all this stuff is starting to fall into place better. Yeah. That was R.C. Sproul's uh biggest frustration. You know, that that famous line, what's wrong with you people? Mm -hmm. We've lost the church and, and most people have just lost sight of who God is and who we are. If we go back to the doctrine of God, we we can humbly um, submit to him knowing, Oh, you are God and I am not. And you know, it doesn't matter how I feel. You yep. are eternal. You are eternal. God, you are, you can't change. So your salvation is eternal and your salvation can't change. And that's mean also thinking about sin, any small, even one small sin against the eternal God will disqualify you from being uh being in his presence and that's why the gospel had to enter the picture so that's why you're not even though you still sin you're not a slave to sin anymore you're justified yeah so it's not like he um doesn't doesn't know you uh sin he's, he certainly does but but that's the whole point of the grace yeah. part so you may you may feel like you're a slave to sin. You are a slave to Christ who sins versus somebody who is a slave to sin is only a slave to sin and outside of Christ. Um, But that doesn't, I think people think that means that at my lowest points, even at my best points that I'm going to live. This is going to sound me. I'm going to live like a higher moral life than those who are outside of Christ, which that, that doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean as like as you know is that like they're like myself or others like we so often do not act better than non Christians because it's not the morality it's like even even though I'm a slave to Christ like there's times I'm just not gonna look that different I'm gonna look worse than non Christians I'm gonna act worse I'm gonna behave worse than non Christians so it's it's not like it's not like knowing this doctrine is gonna make you a more moral person um, I don't want people to think that. Can it mm -hmm. make you a more moral person? Of course it can. It should it <laughs> yeah. make you a more moral person? Of course it should. Um, but it's not like getting the doctrine correct is just gonna like kind of light the light bulb and say, like, oh, like I'm I'm a better person now. It's not like when you walk around, people are like, oh, that guy's a that guy's living a really moral life. Uh, they're probably not gonna see that much difference between you and somebody else. Um, and that's that's why it's it's not based off of your moral performance. It's not based off your moral betterment. It's not based off of how much better you get or how much better you look than another Christian or another Christian or non-Christian because it's not based off of a subjective human standard of morality. It is based off of a holy righteousness that even our best moral efforts are still nothing compared to perfect righteousness and perfect morality. So I don't want people to think once you get the doctrinal God rights, 
uh, although we're still going to get some of these things wrong, um, that all of these things fall into place morally. They do into fall place. They do fall into place doctrinally, which yeah. can make a difference morally. Mm-hmm. But that's not where you ground your assurance in. We're also not saying that we're okay with being antinomian. No, um, no. Well, not- yeah, Article Twelve. After so, I, I did Article Nine and Eleven of Headed Doctrine Five. <laughs> Art, Article Twelve is this assurance as an incentive to godliness. And then Article 13 is assurance, no inducement to carelessness. So it's saying that it is the preservation of the saints is not a free ticket to then just like go morally corrupt. That's not what it Mm -hmm. means. But it does mean because we are, it's not your moral effort that makes you more moral. It's not like you kind of girding it up by your bootstraps, tighten your belt really, really hard and say, gosh, darn, I'm going to work harder now. It is because you are in Christ that he, he will make you more moral and that's his standard not a subjective human standard mm-hmm. quick little plug for our own podcast here if you are an individual and you want to help donate for this work you can go to our show notes to our patreon page as well as our spotify donations page if you want to make a recurring donations they're either 15 or 20 dollars a month or a single donation you can also do that as well those really help us on the back end to give to this work, to keep up our website, to make sure we can pay those who help with our editing, with our software, with our merchandising, all, all those good things. If you're a potential sponsor and you want to sponsor us and, and fill out one of our ads, you can email us at guiltgracepod at gmail.com and we can talk through some of the options that we have. And we would love to work with both individuals and publishers, institutions, seminaries, whoever it may be as we all work towards our mission of bridging the gap to reform Christian theology. Yep. Help expand our work and be a bridge builder. Yeah. Now this can get tricky because we're also understanding the fact that there are people out there that might say they're Christian and their life really, I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm having a really hard time seeing that you're, you belong to Christ because you're doing some really you're living an evil lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I get it. We all have bad days. Uh, we all screw up. We're all embarrassed about some things that we do and say, but when you look at a long-term yeah. uh, zoom out, like whenever I'm feeling like, Oh, I'm really screwing up. And like, I know that. Um, and I feel that because I'm struggling with, I struggle with sin because I recognize sin is an enemy now. But if I look at like my life in the last, you know, five years, I'm like, Wow, God really has grown me. Yeah, but you don't um, want to place your assurance on that. You don't want to correct. place it on how much better I got. Because you correct. can non-Christians can get morally better throughout their lives. They can absolutely give to charities. They can do good for their neighbor. And they can look, when I was 20, I was a horrible human being who lived for myself. Yeah. And now I'm 40, and I give all this stuff. And I think, well, I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I do all the good stuff. So they can still look at their moral achievements and say, like, oh, I'm getting a little better. But that's not where your preservation lies, is on your Correct. moral betterment. It is it is on the gospel. It is on God's eternal decree, his unchangeable decree, that you are in Christ, whose obedience, whose righteousness is yours, which then leads to a life that is pleasing to him, not necessarily just a humanly pleasing life, which it will be a humanly pleasing life. 
but it is first and foremost pleasing to God. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, people outside of Christ, there's a lot of people that are morally good outside of Christ, yeah. but their hope, their trust, their belief, their in faith themselves. is not in Christ. It's in themselves. And um, yeah. even because of that, they could be extra good morally because yeah. they are trying extra hard to be a really good person. We yeah. see that a lot in Buddhism because it's a you it's see a, a lot karma. in all sorts of different people. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's a Mormonism. whole wing of there's a whole wing of philosophy and psychology, moral psychology and moral philosophy, which is kind of getting around. Uh, one of the big guys who I've read a ton of is Jonathan Haidt, who's quite like sees some buddhism i think buddhism is making leaps and bounds as a religion among a lot of non-religious people because like you don't have to believe in god to be a Bud- like buddhism is not a god religion it's not a theistic right. religion um it's a like meditative religion ish mm-hmm. that's that's why it's I, that's like we'll look at rightly so fruits we'll look at a, a a burgeoning moral life but to place your assurance on how much better you're getting is to place the insurance on the wrong foundation. It is placing it on Christ and his work, which works itself out in a, what looks to be more moral life. Yeah. And kind of going back to what I was saying too, if people that aren't believers in Christ, uh, there's certainly morally good people out there that are, but then there are obviously people that are in Christ. There's good people too, but they have a perspective of, um, I'm not doing, I'm not doing these morally works to save myself. I'm doing them out of gratitude, reflection of a response to what I'm saved from and that I am saved not to be saved and not to save myself yeah. because I've already been saved. So I don't want to, I'll, I'll, I'll admit even on that. I don't always think that I don't always think I'm doing Correct. this gratitude to God. I, there's yeah. a lot of times no, I'm doing stuff because I want to feel good about myself. And again, it's because I don't, yep. I don't want to place all this stuff on me and I'm going to like, I, I want to, of course I want a more gratitude filled life, but it's, I don't, I'm not distinguished from a non-believer because I so often think oh, I'm doing this in gratitude to God. It's like, I, to be honest, I don't, it's not like, that's not the first thought that comes in my, maybe, yeah. maybe that's, that's a, that's a weird thing to admit, but that's just not the first thing that comes to my mind all the time. But it's again, thank the Lord is not based off of, how I think I'm doing or why I think I'm doing what I'm doing. It's mm-hmm. even this is Heidelberg nails this toward the end of the Heidelberg catechism. Even our best works are still marred by sin and are still Correct. marred by ungodliness. So even if I think I'm doing this in gratitude to God, because I'm still in this sinful body, I'm st- like, there's still going to be some selfishness in whatever I do. Yeah. I think a core question too, would be uh, where do you find your eternal hope? Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's. I think Christians we tend to think too binarily on this, meaning either I place it all on God, or like I I feel like I place it all on God, or I place it all on myself. But that's again, I, like maybe this is just subjective experience. Like I I can place hope in myself too. Like I I, I place eternal hope in God, of course. Um, but even like day to day, like when I do stuff, I'll still put that hope in myself. That's I'm. Like, and how I act, like, I'm not like the ways I think, the way I feel. Um, and we've become such an introspective people where we look at our heart and look at our motives. And Christianity is an extrospective religion, it is outside of yourself religion, not an yeah. inside of yourself religion. 
it's about what somebody else, AKA our creator did versus what yep. we do. Yep. But, and also that's why it's important to note on the Westminster confession of phase 17, that it does talk about um, hardening of one's heart for a time. Yep. So yes. And, and I also, your I heart will that, be hard as a Christian. It doesn't mean your heart is going to feel free all the time. It's God will be displeased with you even as a Christian. Um, because you've done sinful things because you have a sinful heart and he will harden your heart. But that hardening of your heart is a, is a um, fatherly discipline, yes. not a fatherly condemnation. You took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say, going back to a father child analogy um, discipline, yeah. like when, when it's your child, why do you discipline your child? You yeah. love your child. You're trying to pr- protect your child. You're trying to preserve your child for good. Yeah. And so he is disciplining us because he's, and he still loves us. Like when I discipline my kid, it's not like, oh, I don't love you anymore. And this is yeah. why I'm disciplining you. And it's, you're not my child anymore because you screwed up and I'm disciplining. It's like, he, no, he can never not be your child. Yeah. He is my child and I am actually disciplining him because I love him. And if he's in the middle of the road and it's a busy street, Yep. I'm going to go out there and grab him. Even you're gonna yell and grab him. him. Not because you're pissed at him, but because you like, you want to save him. Yeah. And, and, but and then, then when he gets, if you think about your kid in that moment, I bet. Cause like you and I were kids once. And when our parents did that, that to us, we didn't think our, our parents loved us at that point. We didn't think like, Oh, my parents are doing this for my good. I thought like, Oh, my parent does not want me to be free and happy and all this stuff. It's we, do not know our parents' motives. And so yeah. we assume that they're just trying to like, they're just trying to keep us from a good time. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's how your kids fe- probably feel. That's how I felt. That's probably how you felt where even though they're, even though they, they love us through disciplining us, that is not how the kid feels all the time. Yeah. And, and in the moment, the kid is upset. Yeah. Really but that upset. doesn't, but that doesn't change the situation. No, no. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't change how I love the kid, nope. how I love my kid. He may be upset, um, but you that's also, not what you matters. Don't love your, you don't love your kid perfectly. You love your kid really, really well, as well as you humanly possibly can. But you don't love your kid how the father loves us mm-hmm. in that purity of love where there is where there is nothing but love. Yeah. When I talk to my son, uh, well, I have two sons. One's a baby and i you know talk to him as much as i can about it. but <laughs> yeah. i'm talking to my three-year-old i, I tell him i love you yeah. and you know who loves you even more yeah god loves you even more so the more i love my child he knows god loves him even more than i love him he's gonna be like whoa you love me pretty well god loves me even more like, even if perfectly? you don't love him well he'll hopefully know that his heavenly father loves him perfectly even with perfectly him, when his earthly father does not love him perfectly Correct. And also, uh, I think dis- going back to discipline, it, it, I think there's some, it's there to increase our hope and keep us in humility yeah. because God knows who we are and, and he, uh, he wants to keep our, take care of our hearts. Um, he wants yep. to keep us humble so we can worship him correctly. Mm-hmm. And so, well, let's go into the last question. So, um, as we conclude, uh, you'll probably hear, you might, you might, how might you respond to someone who says, well, if the Lord promises he'll never forsake you, why, 
not just live, live it up and do whatever you like. So this is antinomianism. And on the positive side, how does this doctrine, like the previous question, free us toward a life of grateful service of the Lord? And Paul talks about that with fruits. Yeah. Yeah. So let me, let me end with uh, Article 12 of Kens of Dort, Head of Doctrine 5 on Perseverance mm-hmm. of the Saints. And it says, this assurance as an incentive to godliness. It says, this assurance of preserva- per- perseverance, however, so far from making believers proud and carnally self-assured, so kind of like the first part of that question, why do I have to do anything if if it's already taken care of for me? And like you said at the end, and I, I like how you bridge this, is rather the true root of humility, of childlike respect, of genuine godliness, of endurance in every conflict, of fervent prayers, of steadfastness and cross-bearing, and in confessing the truth, and of well-founded joy in God, reflecting on this benefit provides an incentive to serious and continual practice of thanksgiving and good works, so gratitude and good works, as is evident from the testimonies of Scripture and the examples of the saints. And the last article on this, assurance, no inducement to carelessness. Neither does the renewed confidence of per- perseverance produce immortal- or immorality or lack of concern for godliness in those put back on their feet after the fall, but it produces a much greater concern to observe carefully the ways of the Lord which he prepared in advance. They observe these ways in order that by walking in them, they may maintain the assurance of their perseverance, lest by the abuse of, their father, of his fatherly goodness, the grace of the gracious God for the godly looking upon his face is sweeter than life, but its withdrawal is more bitter than death. Turn again from them with the result that they fall into greater anguish of spirit. And so it does, I think, have a little bit to do with the humility that you talked about, the fatherly discipline, humility, our our humility before a great and holy God, where perseverance is, if, if perseverance were based off your and my works, then we would have a ground for our boasting. We can say like, yeah, I'm doing a pretty good job at this. This is my preservation my my staying in god's good grace is because of my works is because of how well i'm doing is because i read my bible two hours every day because i listen to so much scripture i listen to sermons every single day i do all this good stuff i am being preserved because i'm putting the work in it is Mm. because god is the one who keeps you whether or not you're obeying him it is because god is the one who preserves you because of his unchangeable degree because of the work of jesus christ and then Towards the end of of this, it also talks about how it's done too, and this is this is in connection to the local church. This is again how contextless tulip can work. It is you can kind of think I keep up this through my private work, through my private um, Bible reading, prayer, sermon listening, um, getting together with believers by fellow by fellowship, communion, but it is it is the simple ordinary work of the Spirit as you you hear the good news. Every single Sunday, you partake of the sacraments, you partake of the blood and body of Christ. You are part of the communion of believers. Um, you are either um, exhorted in discipline or you're built up in uh, in good works. It is this is how He preserves you. It is it is not your doing something that preserves you. Or it would be like, yeah, I kind of have a boast for this stuff, um, which is kind of how it's talked about sometimes. It's it's. Uh, these spiritual disciplines to like feel more spiritual, feel like you're doing better stuff versus receiving this stuff is, is how you're preserved. It's receiving the gospel. It's receiving the sacraments. 
as being part of a larger body than yourself, as being part of the local church where you have membership, um, that that's, that's how you're preserved. Mm -hmm. There is a reason why Jesus came and lived a perfect sinless life yeah, and fulfilled the covenant of works. Because when you're in Christ, you don't, you don't, no one fulfills the covenant of works, but we're, we're not fulfilling the covenant of works. We're in Christ. He fulfilled it for us. Yeah. If you're outside of Christ, you only have the covenant of works as your goal, but you're never going to achieve it. Yeah. Um, but go, going to kind of cap this off, I think I want to just get, get back to um, calling somebody to Christ because they hear this stuff and the, a lot of this conversation, obviously this conversation is focused on uh, people that are yep. saved. So how does someone become saved? Because the question is like, I think a lot of even Christians will think, you know, incorrectly, there's people that don't get saved and go to hell. Um, how do I know that I'm not one of those people? And so they start thinking about the, what we we're just talking about in the episode. So let's get brass tacks gospel. How does someone, you know, just based on the word and the gospel hearing it, because that's how people are saved. How do they give their life to Christ to know that they're now part of God's family? Yeah. I think this goes into what we first talked about. It's the Bible has a doctrine of the preservation of the saints that what we just talked about. It is God's unchangeable decree. It is through Christ's obedience to the covenant works, according to the stipulations set out in the covenant of redemption between the Father, the Son, and implicitly by the Holy Spirit. And then we are engrafted into the covenant of grace, which is Christ and his work for us. That's that's the that's the Bible's doctrine of preservation of the saints. But like I said at the beginning, the culture has a doctrine of preservation, preservation of preservation of ourselves. It is um Everybody listening to this, regardless if we're a Christian or not, wants to be either remembered, wants to be in the good graces of their friends, their family, of those that they work with, whatever it is, they want to be thought well of. They want to continue their legacy. They want to make more money. If they want to have more kids, they want to have a bigger house. They want more vacations. Um, they want to have a better reputation and like it's not like you want to lose that stuff. It's it's not like oh I just want that for time and I'm okay if that's this goes away. It's like we want this to to stay, and we want to be remembered. We want to be revered. We look at legends of sports. We look legends of of uh, of the music industry, of the movie industry, of of whatever it is, of of big CEOs, of of our friends who seem to be doing great things and they have all these followers. Um, like what there's there's a doctrine of preservation of the saints in, in culture, and. If we're looking at that, if we're looking at this this temporary memory of society, um, like I said, you like you don't remember your great grandpa if you ever knew him. You don't remember your great grandma if you ever knew her. You probably barely remember your grandparents if you're around them. Uh, you don't remember those who lived in your line in the 1700s and the 1800s. Beyond that, it's your no matter. No matter what you do in this life, it will not be enough. And that's not just saying it will not be enough to satisfy God's requirements. I'm not saying that. It won't be enough for you. It won't be enough for for anybody. Mm. Um, and I think everybody knows that. It's no matter how hard you work, you there's always something more. Tom Tom Brady is famous because he run 
he won seven Super Bowls. And at the end of his seventh one, at the end of his first one, he's like, man, I like this, but now I got to get more of them. Now, like, I've already reached the zenith as a sport. Now I got to do more. I got to, I don't want people to forget me. He's, I think he's on record as saying, like, this feels, this feels worse than I thought it would. It's like, I'm, I now got what I wanted. I'm now, people know who I am. I have all this money. I have a supermodel wife, which I think now they're divorced. But like this, it's just like, it's going to flee. It's just, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna leave. No matter, no matter who you are, no matter how much you've done, no matter how much money you've made, no matter how many kids you have, no matter how long you think your memories are going to be preserved. If you've written books, if you've sung songs, if you've been in movies, we do this because we want to be remembered. And we feel like that's, that's if, if we don't believe in eternal life. And I've, I've seen this from other philosophers they will say, I do not believe in eternal life, but I do believe in eternal memory where my my life is not preserved, but my memory is preserved. And so I, I do think that that exists kind of in the broader culture. And I just got like, that's just not going to last. Not even mm. beyond even our sin that separates us from God, our sin that we have rendered in disobedience to God's law. But like, that's not even getting into that. But that's that's uh, for those who are outside of Christ. I feel like I, there's no kind of kinder way of saying it. Like you're going to be forgotten. No, nobody's going to remember your name. Nobody's going to remember my name. Nobody's going to remember Nick's name. This this podcast will not be remembered in ten years, in fifty years, a hundred. Like it just it's just not. Um, this is temporary. This is fleeting, and that's what is incredible about God's call to us is his memory does not fade. His memory of you does not fleet. When he gives you to the son, his son knows your name and says, I will keep you forever. I know your name. So when you walk into new creation heaven, walk into the gates, Christ will look at you, say your name, and say, welcome into my rest. He will know your name forever. He will keep your name forever. And it's not because you did anything. It's not because you preserved it. It's not because you worked hard. It is because you said, I am worthless. I like I, I can't be remembered. I, I've done nothing to be remembered. In fact, I've done everything to be separated from God to no longer remember me. And yet Christ has still saved me. Christ has still kept me. Christ has still given me his righteousness. And Christ will forever remember my name. That's that's what I would especially connecting with preservation of the saints. I think that's probably the the best way of connecting it. Exactly. Yeah. And and God is our creator. He created everything. He created unbelievers too. He knows who his saved elect people are. And God is our or yeah, God is our creator. And Jesus is our only hope. Yeah. So culture if will not remember you. Like your family, your friends will not remember you. If you right. die right now. Give it 50 years, 20 years, whatever it is. They will not remember you. It sounds harsh, but they're just not. They're not going to remember me. If I died right now, people will forget me. Two or three generations that have no idea who I was, what I did, nothing. But Christ, when you become part of his family, he remembers you. And he doesn't forget you. It's He doesn't forget. He doesn't doesn't remember more of you. He remembers you. And he remembers you forever. It's, he's, he's a, he's the, He's the brother, if you can call him that, who never for, who for, never forgets you because his father never forgets you and because he's one with his father. 
they never forget you. Yeah. And that is a call to the gospel because Jesus is our only hope. So if you do care about uh, eternity, yeah, uh, being always remembered and those everyone, kind of everyone cares about that. Nobody does exactly. not remember. Nobody does not you know why. Yeah. Because we are created in God's image and we all have a uh, God-shaped hole in our heart that only Christ can fill. And so if you all humanity cares, we have a sense of eternalness. We have a sense of wanting to be remembered because we are created in God's yeah. image. And so if you feel that pull, then you know that your only hope is in Christ. So that's when you, if you hear the gospel, you hear the word and you, and, and you understand Christ came to die on the cross to for your sins and and your hope is in his resurrection and he's your king now he he's your identity now not yourself and and your sin and your um so believe, trust believe and give yourself to Christ and you'll be welcomed into God's family and he gives you the faith so this even down to faith he knows he's elect children even faith is a gift. So he gives faith to his children to be saved. Mm -hmm. There we go. Yep. So hopefully all of you who enjoyed this episode or listened to it, enjoyed it and, and heard um, both encouraging things were, were challenged. Uh, but most of all, to understand what preservation of the saints is within reformed theology. And hopefully we introduced it well. And make sure, like we talked about at the beginning of this episode, that we're going to transition now into our conversation with President Joel Kim of Westminster Seminary, California. He's going to talk to us for about 50 minutes about Westminster, about her origins, uh, theology, professors, where she's been, where she's going, her curriculum, uh, some misconceptions I want around Westminster, answer some of those misconceptions. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I think gives one of the best kind of pitches for if you're looking for a graduate school to go to be uh, either introduced to Reformed theology, if you're looking to be a pastor and be trained for the pastoral ministry, if you're a Bible teacher and want more Bible knowledge for that as well, or if you're just a, a lay person who just wants to be better trained, this is also a great opportunity to better train. So hopefully you guys also enjoy this upcoming conversation with President Joel Kim. Yep. Thanks, guys. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. And today we're doing another Season 6 Introduction to Reformed Theology episode. Today is preservation preservation of the saints, <laughs> and uh, we have President Reverend Joel Kim on from Westminster, California, and so I'll let Peter further introduce him today. And uh, just as a extra reminders on this season, if you go to our show notes, you're going to learn more about the other episodes who we've had on. They're all uh, either professors and or alumni from West Cal. So there's a link to Westminster Seminary, California in sunny San Diego. And so you can click that link and learn more about their school on their in-person seminary education and what it's all about. And I'm sure Reverend Kim is going to sh shed more light on that as well. 
And then other reminders about how to find us on social media and how to contact us on email and find us on these conversations on YouTube and everything else in between, including also a link to uh, Crossway's book that I've been personally using to uh, to research and, and ask questions based on the seasons, creeds, confessions, and catechisms, Crossway book edited by Chad Van Dixorn. And so check out that book too. It's my guide for this season, if I could pick out a book. So I'll let Peter further introduce the president of his school, Reverend Joel Kim. Yeah, we have Joel Kim. He's the president and assistant professor of New Testaments at Westminster Seminary, California, where he's been since the mid-2000s, 2005, I think. So it's been coming up on 20 years at Westminster, although he's been president for the past six, I think, if I have my numbers right. Well, it's a pleasure having you on our show, President Kim. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. Of yeah. course, yeah. So our uh, our icebreaker question, we like asking questions that the audience doesn't know we know. You probably know I know this because you, you say this every single time we had president's coffee. Um, you were the... Uh, you were middle school athletes of the year. Tell us about your <laughs> athletic exploits when you're a middle schooler. If nobody yeah. sees, he's laughing because he's he's probably annoyed that I know that. <laughs> I guess we're going we're we're going more broad and public with this knowledge. I, it, it, I try <laughs> to keep right. it to myself primarily, uh, but yeah, no, and I, I you know I went to a a school in San Jose, which is where I was raised, Northern California, mm -hmm. and the middle school there. Um, I play volleyball and basketball, but if you know me, I'm not that tall. And so <laughs> the two sports that require height, unfortunately, were my sports. But uh, when you're younger, you know, it, it's not really skill sets. It's how hard you work. And so in eighth grade, I was voted the athlete of the year. The joke in our family is when I share this with my future wife, her immediate response was, were you homeschooled? Uh, it was not a homeschool. Um <laughs> I did beat yeah. out a number of other students, but this is an ongoing uh, joke for us. Um, thankfully, our kids are uh, much more athletic than their dad, that's right. so we're grateful for that. Yeah, did they get that from their mom's side or from their dad's side? Oh, I'm sure everything good comes from the mom's side. Um, Sense of humor, lots too. of things that I... <laughs> 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 that's probably true, too. <laughs> awesome. Uh, that's good. So, um, yeah, tell our audience a little bit more about yourself just beyond kind of your... Uh, your academic or your um, ecclesial background. Tell them more, a little bit more about Joel Kim. Sure. I, um, I'm i married to a lady named Sharon, uh, whom we just talked about a little bit. We have two kids, Anna and Simeon, uh, named after the individuals named in Luke 2 in particular. Um, and Anna is 18, is about to go to college this fall. Mm. Simeon is almost 16, uh, heading into his sophomore year in high school. And so that's our small family. I, I grew up in a pastor's family. My dad is a retired Christian Reformed Church minister, though when he was in Korea, I came here to the States when I was about 10. Hmm. And when we moved to the States, a family of seven, five kids, he church planted up in San Jose, which is why we ended up there. But in Korea, he was a Presbyterian minister. When we immigrated during the early 80s, uh, there were a number of conservative theological options if you're Reformed and Presbyterian. One of them was CRC uh -huh. at that point. And my my parents joined the denomination. That's where he served till the end of his uh, ministry career. Uh, myself, we having gone through the seminary here in, in the mid-90s, 
I decided to join the PCA when mm -hmm. the CRC went through some transitions and changes. And mm -hmm. here I am ordained in the P PCA, um, grateful and privileged to be serving here on campus. We have some wonderful folks, both faculty and staff and alums like UP, many others. And so I, I get to come to work every single day and work with these folks. I'm very grateful. Awesome. So you've already you've already talked about this. You've already kind of broached the topic and, and Nick's already said it. And as anybody knows, and this one is the second half of a conversation we'll have, but we're going to focus more particularly so on uh, Westminster on this since we have the El Presidente for Westminster on. So how did you find Westminster? I'm going to ask that first. What's How did that come onto your radar? Yeah, you know, uh, it's a personal history, obviously. I, I think Westminster is in the mind of Korean-American Christians. Uh, it's actually on the forefront of everyone's mind. I really? mean, okay. partly what, happened is, what happens is if you, if you go to South Korea right now uh -huh. and the church is there, and it, you know, this is hard to imagine as an American here, uh -huh. if you mm -hmm. wonder about the biggest denominations and churches, oh, they're true. all Presbyterian. Yeah, and true. so as a result of it, many of us, and myself included, uh, were raised in the Presbyterian background. And one of the schools that trained many of the theologians and pastors in Korea are from Westminster Theological Seminary, Philly at that point. Mm -hmm. And so when we immigrated to the U.S., we spent some time in San Jose, Northern California, as I said, and we moved down to Irvine, which is in Orange County. West, mm -hmm. Westminster Seminary, California was already known, especially Westminster Theological System yeah. to begin with, both East and West. Yeah. The reason I came to rec uh, know about the one here in San Diego at that point was I was at... Um, at a big state school in LA, uh, mm -hmm. attending my undergrad, mm -hmm. and we the had lesser state... of the two um, LA schools, right? No, 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 the greater of the, the two. USC and the lesser of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm... Let, let's not get into that. We're going to get distracted <laughs> into uh, a fight song here at some point, but <laughs> but but all that to say, we had a number of speakers come up from Westminster Seminary, California, mm -hmm. uh, joined us mm -hmm. at Christian groups up there. One that I remember particularly was Bob Godfrey, mm -hmm. who was mm -hmm. uh, who, who still teaches for us as an emeritus professor of history, yep. but he was the previous president. He had just begun his presidency. I was a senior in college. He came up and he spoke on the most interesting topic that every collegian was thinking about, which is infant baptism. <laughs> and so he yeah. came up and spoke to a bunch of uh, college students. And that's when I was introduced to Westminster Seminary, California in greater detail. And it was a decision as a CRC kid between Calvin and mm. Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, staying near family and staying in Southern California was not a very difficult decision. No. Decided to come down here in 94, spent three years here at the seminary. So that's how uh, mm. Westminster Seminary, California came onto my radar uh, somewhat broadly known because of my Presbyterian background, but sure. at the same time, more specifically introduced to me by a number of faculty members who came up and, and spoke at UCLA. I'm sure come February, when you were at Westminster, you're pretty happy you're in San Diego and not well, in Michigan. February, January, December, <laughs> November. Right. Uh, you know, I must say for our Midwest brothers and sisters, the fall and spring are beautiful. I oh, mean, they're gorgeous. Hard. Yeah. And having spent some time in the Midwest during my grad studies, uh, those are moments and weeks that I, I, I wish we had here 
in terms of California. So um, I, my guess is that every region has its strengths, but certainly I, I don't mind the milder totally. winters we have in California. Absolutely. Mm. And then two connected questions. Yeah. What was your education like at Westminster? And then how did it prepare you for pastoral duties, for seminary duties, and for being a president? Well, I don't know about the latter. I mean, it's not like seminaries, <laughs> you know, there's no elective people to become administrator. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Administrative responsibility is not necessarily what seminaries are known for. You know, I, I really enjoyed my time here. I don't know how else to say it. I realize that some people might think that I have to say that or get paid to say those things, but untrue. I really did enjoy my time. I think lots of people would agree with this. Friendships are forged. I think more deeply when you agree and when you're thinking about similar things. And so though I had some wonderful friends in high school and college, we Mm. were thinking about various things, different things. I was a history major, so wonderful history friends as well. But seminary is where you make lifelong friendships in ministry. People who are thinking about similar things you are, people are preparing for similar things. And so many of my closest friends even now are from my seminary days. And so I realized that may not be the forefront thing that people think about in Mm -hmm. seminary, but certainly Mm -hmm. ministry is not something you do alone. And you are encouraged not only by the the congregation, certainly your family, but peers that are engaged in ministry. And that was a huge blessing for me to meet and be surrounded by many. And for me, uh, as someone who was interested in theological studies, certainly was raised and reformed, and theological yep. background to have the coherence of theology taught here. You're you're starting your first year with the languages until the end, where it's one thing for us to think about theological ideas, for us to read the word, but to be done in such a systematic way was a huge blessing for me. It gave me perspective and as well as I think insight that certainly I I, I didn't have. Mm. And but seminary is not the be on end all of theological mm. education. It's just these are the places and times when tools are provided. And certainly I gained all the tools necessary for a lifetime of learning. So for friendships, hmm. I think deeper insights into the word and theology and the professors that I had. These were, yeah. I don't know how many times I saw my professors um, so moved by oh, the yes. contents of yep. what they taught, uh, be, be moved to tears Uh, get into a preaching mode, as we like to say, where they are imparting to us, not just about content, but their passions. I think those are things that I will cherish and remember. And I hope that as as an institution of theological learning, we're continuing that tradition even now. Yeah, that was something I saw. Yeah, it was um, there are classes where multiple times the professors would be brought to tears. And that was, it was not like planned tears. They'd just be talking about something. And it would just come out. You're like, oh, okay, this is really important stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one thing for us to know something, but to know that these things are personal and yeah. these are not things that we do just simply because our this is our work. Yeah. Uh, this is our faith displayed and shared and explained to our students and many who are engaged with us. And so I think for many of us, you know, we're not here because we get paid a lot. We're not here because <laughs> somehow all these things are the easiest things to yeah. do or to be engaged in. The Lord's been very kind in calling us into this work, both as pastors and as teachers, and to be able to engage in this work. Um, it, it, it sounds, you know, overly, um, you know, a, a personal, but it, it is a huge privilege for all of us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... 
going more particularly so about Westminster. Sure. I don't know if many people know about the background at Westminster Seminary, California. My my guess yeah. is if people know about it, it might be like, well, they're they're kind of like the lesser school. They're like the sister school. They're like the the redheaded stepchild of of Westminster, Philadelphia. But what what is the uh, sorry if you're redheaded listening to the show, or if you're a stepchild listening to the show, but what is the origin of Westminster? Sure. You know, um, I'm not sure if I, I like the word lesser, Pete, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. apart from taking issue with that. <laughs> so what? Ha- yeah. So our school uh, was founded in 1980. What that means is we're as we look forward to 2030 and 31, that's our uh, what, what would you call it? The golden anniversary, the jubilee year, the 50th yep. anniversary yep. is what we're what we're facing and preparing for. Now, part of the reason for mentioning that was Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia was founded in 1929. Mm -hmm. You might remember, if you remember the church history and modern church history, in particular America, there were lots of debates taking place. And many of us would recount the history of our continuation of the Princeton line and theological teachings. Their jubilee year, Westminster Theological Seminary, was 1979, for those Mm -hmm. who are going through the decades. And they had a number of things that they planned. And one of the things that they prayed for under the leadership of Ed Clowney was to do a school plant. And the initial school plant was in, uh, as far as I know, in Florida, but they it didn't last very long. And, huh. and many, many people do, do not do not know that. But what they I heard San Francisco was the was the city I heard first. Well, I mean, that's that's not where the school began. This uh, There was an actual school, an institute. Oh, in oh that's Florida. right. That's right. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, San yeah. Francisco was one of the possible locations yeah. out west. But we eventually, well, not we, they eventually decided that they wanted to land here near San Diego in a city mm-hmm. called Escondido. And the idea was to bring this sound theology out west. And these these are days prior prior to online education yeah. or any kind of access to these things. And so they have to be out here. And so we remain the only confessionally reformed seminary out west west coast still. Mm-hmm. So that was 1979. 1980, they decided to send out faculty members. Uh, Bob Godfrey was one of those individuals, along with John Frame, Robert Strimple. Uh, Dendolk was the administrator who also came out as well. And they added a number of faculty members, uh, Klein, mm-hmm. Adams, uh, Dennis Johnson. These are all names that are familiar to many of us who are second generation students. And so when they began in 1980 and accepted students, in 82, it became quite clear that not only was the school going to stick out west, that is, have some kind of resiliency in terms of staying, to oversee and govern the institution continentally was very difficult. So they separated the two institutions into sister institutions, which meant for us, we're governed by our own governance and board, Mm -hmm. have our own president. And so 1982, was the first year we elected our first president, uh, Robert Strimple, who was my systematic professor. And then he retired a number of years later. Robert Dendolk, also one of the original founding administrators, became the second president. And then the third president was Robert and uh, Bob, Bob Godfrey, as we call him, the mm-hmm. third uh, president who was also one of the original founding faculty members. They're affectionately called our three Bobs. 
And so uh, Robert, Robert, Robert were the yeah. three presidents. They couldn't had. find another Robert for the fourth president. No, they couldn't. They, they couldn't. So when the announcement went out, the half joke was, I, I need to change my name to something like Joel Robert Kim, JB or something, <laughs> yeah. uh, to make the consistency work. So in brief, that's the history. Ed Clowney later on came out stayed with us for uh, yep. i think over a dozen years okay. teaching here and yep. uh um in many ways he was the teacher for us as well so he was my preaching prof when i was here along with mm -hmm. Dirk bergsma and so a long history of connection and sisterly or brotherly relationship with westminster theological seminary located in philly awesome <clears throat> the god has blessed the world with so many seminary schools and yeah. I mean, I think we're, that's just an obvious thing that to be grateful for mm -hmm. around the world, every continent, there is a seminary school, just talking about Christianity in general. When we talk about reform theology, a lot of people might not realize what reform theology is until they start considering a seminary school. Um, and then I guess the question I would have is, you know, when it comes to looking into seminary schools when there's tons of competition, I guess air quotes, like we don't look at it as real, it's friendly competition, right? Uh, there's other seminary schools to choose from. There's other reformed seminary schools to choose from. What makes Westminster Seminary California stand out amongst the friendly competition? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the question. And, and, and I, I appreciate how you clarify you know, the, the 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 word competition, I think you said air quotes in particular. Mm -hmm. That's how we see it. I mean, the Lord's really blessed uh, the U.S. with a number of very good seminaries and reform seminaries in particular. And we're we're delighted to call many of them our sister and friend institutions where we labor together. But if I may add one element to your question, which is that if you look internationally and not just nationally, you mm -hmm. realize that there is actually a shortage of theological education. You know, we recognize when seminarians graduate and they're looking for positions to end up in, oftentimes the scarcity of positions that's sometimes mentioned, it's usually a domestic question and discussion. But if you look at the, the Christ Church much more broadly and internationally, the mm -hmm. theological seminaries that are producing pastors aren't as common as we think uh, uh, we think it is. And there is greater need for continuing engagement that way. And this is part of the reason why hmm. we had our team go out to Japan this year, short That's term right. mission team from students yep. who was there working with the churches. One of the faculty members and I were in Cambodia during that time because we have plans to send our short term team out there uh, uh, next year while at the same time teaching at a seminary out there ironically called Westminster Seminary, Cambodia, huh. Huh. Uh, during that time period. And year after, we hope to be out in uh, um, uh, different countries as well, Colombia in particular, and the needs are still out there. And so I think in many ways, the, the flourishing of the seminaries is an important part of preparing leaders for Christ Church, not just in the U.S., but elsewhere as well. But the question more directly was, what makes us who we are. And there are a number of things here I can share with you, Nick, in particular. One of them has to do with now, and this is not necessarily us trying to be contrarian. We are maintaining what we believe is the best way to prepare future pastors and leaders for the local church. And that has made us slightly different than I think many other seminaries. That is, we still focus on in-person and residential education. Yeah. And the reason for that is simply for us, 
theological education uh, has a number of components where you have theological downloading of information, which can be done online uh, rather successfully in some ways. And then you also have skill sets to be gained, counseling or preaching mm -hmm. or otherwise. Mm -hmm. It's the spiritual formation that we feel like that can't be done online very well. This is not me knocking online education. There oh. are many benefits uh, that are involved with online. But for us, where our primary focus is local church leadership, we believe that this is still the best way to prepare future leaders and pastors for the church. So here, not intentionally, but just by the, the passage of time and commitments, we've become unique in terms of our commitment to in-person education. If I can add a few other distinctives in terms of theological education in particular is the kind of structure of curriculum. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that is... Here, we begin with the languages. Uh, you have to learn Greek and Hebrew before you have you can move on to the next level. What that level means also is that there are these kind of structured curriculum. It's not a cafeteria system where you add up units, and as long as you have enough units, you graduate. We believe that there is a built-in structure to education. It's very intentional. It's structured. And so here you begin with certain classes that leads you to the next, which leads you to the next even still. And I think that's very unique among reform mm -hmm. seminaries, that there is a structured theological training that takes place that way. If I can add one more element to it, and then we can talk about this all day, but <laughs> one more element that's worth considering is the fact that we are in a gateway location in California. People may think a lot of different things about California. And I realize that, if, especially if you're from the South or the Midwest, yeah. you may not think much of California. Yeah. But or think poorly of California. <laughs> that's right. And poorly of California, the left coast. But there are a couple of things about California that I think it's worth remembering. One is we're a gateway location. And globally speaking, and the church is much bigger than our national one. It's a gateway location where 40 miles south, we hit Latin America, Mexico in particular, you drive 20 miles from our school and you fall into the ocean, but that's where you face the east and recognize that the Lord Church is really needed and it needs to flourish out Asia. And so that's the perspective that we have. Just as importantly, if I can add to it, California is, I think, where America is going. That is, where, where we are is where you have people who are unchurched, dechurched, anti-churched. Mm -hmm. And the list can go on. Um, the, the Bible Belt in the U.S. is not representative of where the U.S. is going. California is. I'm not taking that as an element of pride, mm -hmm. but simply an element of preparation. If you are wanting to prepare for ministry in a place where it's not necessarily aware of our faith, our history, uh, the understanding of the scriptures, California is that place. And you come and you train along with vibrant churches that are nearby. I think it's a wonderful way to be prepared for uh, Christ Church's service for the next decades to come. So although we can talk about a lot of those things, I wonder if those things kind of get at some of the unique uh, contributions that Westminster, California can make. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Joel has already prophetically answered my next question. So Nick, yeah. why, don't you ask your, why don't you ask your next question after this? I think this is it's a big one, especially kind of in the seminary industrial complex out there. Yeah, sure. And to also piggyback on that California thing, like <clears throat> it doesn't mean that you're going to end up living here for the rest of your life. If you're from somewhere yeah. else, and I would say 
anywhere else in the country has worse weather for sure. Southern <laughs> California has the best weather in the country. Yeah. So think what you want about California. You don't have to stay here your whole life, but if you come here for three years and get top right. notch, top notch education and you get the, you get to enjoy the, the weather and really good food and a little different, maybe uh environment than you're used to and then go back home and plant a church, a reformed church in a different area. And you have a great network of West Cal alumni all over the globe. Sorry. I'm, I totally stole your stage and I'm, I'm no, no, I, I actually uh, appreciate that, Nick, for a couple of yeah. reasons. Um, Nick's, a, Nick's because, a salesman. If you didn't, if you didn't know that, so no, I mean, this go, is, I yeah. mean that's you're, 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 you're throwing me softballs here in some ways, but <laughs> one of our faculty, Josh Fanny, loves to take the students out. Oh, surf. that's and right. So yeah. His when, when we think stuff. about things like that, I mean, there are, there are a number of things you can enjoy in California that perhaps you might not have great access to elsewhere, but it's, it, it's your particular point about preparing for ministry and how long it takes. And I realize that the theological scene right now is changing pretty quickly, where one of them is you you want to stay where you are. And so there are two trends that are taking place. One is you want to be where you are and not move too much. And I understand lots of practical questions regarding that financially or otherwise. And then when you add to it, the question mark of, oh, isn't it better if you go through an apprenticeship uh, that you are with a local church pastor you're watching. And I think all those things have value and historic um, legitimation in terms of why those things are very helpful. But I will say this, that, you know, the future ministry preparation, if the Lord continues to sustain you, is going to be a 40-year ministry window. And as you look at those years, the the three to four years that require for preparation seem like it's a long time, but it's actually short when you're thinking about a lifetime. Now that I'm getting old, um, <laughs> a decade doesn't seem as long as it no. used to uh, before. And you realize the investment of both time and resources for good preparation and foundation uh, is an essential part of longevity of ministry and endurance in ministry. And to be with folks who have been in ministry, one of the things I'm really grateful for is the faculty we currently have. And, you know, our PT faculty, if I can just mention, Craig Troxell has been in full-time mm. senior pastoral ministry for 25 years. After his PhD program, he pastored. And to be with folks like this who have gone through various stages of ministry's life and history and also have the wisdom coming into ministry to share with our students, I think it's an amazing thing to have all these men here here at the same time and learn from. It's, a, it's an incubation period. And when you add to it what, all the healthy and, and vibrant Reformed churches nearby, yeah. I, I, I think those times will be well spent. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Good deal. Yeah. And so this is the time to address some any misconceptions people have as the president. Do you hear some, uh, you know, I'm sure all you ever hear is just good stuff about Westminster all the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's roses. <laughs> yeah. Right. Any any mischaracterizations, misconceptions people have um, inquiring about the school or they hear about from, you know, from other people and, you know, how could you respond to these most common misconceptions you hear? Sure. I, I think one is more practical and the second is perhaps more theological. Just briefly, yep. you know, um, hitting those a little bit. The practical one is there is a, there is a sense 
that if you are engaged so deeply in theological education as you do here, you know, the, the ongoing joke about seminaries is seminaries are cemeteries. And, and, and part of that is that it's the deadening for your soul. And for Westminster in particular, you have theologians who graduate, but perhaps not as much pastoral individuals. And, and there may be some, you know, uh, historic reasons why people feel this way along the way. But if I can just point out that theological education and the praxis that arise out of it are not disconnected from one another. At the end of the day, we desire our students to be experts in the Bible, to proclaim and to teach the Bible well, and to be transformed by the word that they lift up on high. And, and we, to that end, we hope that our school will be a place where our faculty members are models, the, the requirement of internship at local churches where they follow the local churches pastors and learn from them will be invaluable for their growth. And so though those are common criticisms of seminaries and certainly ours as well, I personally, and, and, and you know, uh, and you're going to have to take that with a grain of salt, my guess is, is for some, I, I don't think that's true on our campus. No. You'll see a community here dedicated to faithful teaching upon the word and the confessions and history yet at the same time, passionate for what we do. And our, our, for our faculty, oftentimes, sound theology and practice is more caught than taught, meaning that much of our learning takes place with one another and among the students outside of the classroom. Not that classroom learning is unimportant. It's just there's a lot of incubation going on here, sharpening one another. And I do hope that you'll see in our graduates people. And I think, Nick, you're you're part of a church where you have one of our graduates pastoring. Mm. I, I can't think of anyone thinking that Jonathan, you know, Pastor Jonathan in particular, would there's a disconnect between his theology and his practice. The other, as I mentioned at the onset, is some of the theological question marks. That is, hey, do, do we have idiosyncratic theological positions? Mm, uh, yeah, that? And, yeah. and, and to be honest, I mean, you can, you can mention a number of these things, whether it be two kingdoms uh, theology, or mm -hmm. uh, you, you could talk about republication or, yep. or others of that nature. And frankly, these are research things and topics our faculty members are engaged in. And, 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 and people know this as well as anyone else. These things come to discussion in class because we're informing them mm -hmm. of the overall theological positions as well as where the theological yep. landscape is. But mm -hmm. the the minor things do not dominate what we no, not at all. No. our focus on. We believe we are majoring in the majors, and that's what we want to be able to do. This is why you have guys like Mike Horton writing, I think, the only recent one-volume systematic theology among Reformed theologians that we have out there. I realize that there are multiple volumes that are, I think, yeah. are coming out still, and he actually works on those things as well. But you're dealing with substantial theological trajectories that we want to be able to teach and pass on. David Van Drunen, who's our ethics professor, has an upcoming volume on Reformed ethics, yep. uh, which is a multi-volume work that's going to be condensed into one now mm -hmm. that deals with the overall teachings of how we ought to apply the teachings of scripture to our lives. And all that to simply say, we believe that we are majoring in the majors, and that's what we want to be known for mm -hmm. in terms of being squarely on the word, 
conversant with theological history and our confessions and faithful in terms of what <clears throat> we teach uh, as students go forth from our school. Yeah, yeah, if I can provide a hearty amen for that, because I do know in the classes, you can certainly argue for your position. If, Absolutely. I mean, if somebody's theonomic, if somebody's whatever, um, as long as you argue it well with the professors and back it up, they're not going to give you a, a, a failing grade because you don't agree with them. But they're like, hey, give me backup for this. This is a, this is a conversation, let's say domination of, of our viewpoints, which I think was really helpful. So just to provide a, a good hearty amen for that. I think most teachers would agree that, you know, even if you take a different position, if you have convictions, um, you want to be able to articulate them well, and sometimes sharpening with differences even stronger. It, it, to give you one example of how, how these things navigate, because I realize that there are lots of seminaries with multiple theological strands that come yeah. through. But I was a senior here, my third year in seminary as an MDiv student, when we had a creditor's visit. And, and one of the questions that was raised by the accreditor, accrediting visiting team was the question of, since you guys have uh, clear theological convictions standing on the confessions, Westminster standards, so our faculty members subscribe to both the Westminster standards and also the three forms of unity, yep. uh, you know, in, in terms of our convictions and theological convictions, we do not require that of our students. Yeah. And so as we teach these things, we want to be able to articulate and explain different positions as well as the proponents of those positions might argue them. And But they were asking, isn't it better for you to have multiple theological positions among faculty members uh, for you to choose from? And as students, we didn't know exactly how to answer these accreditors who were there. Maybe we were even intimidated. But there was this one Jesuit visitor huh. who said, isn't it better to have clear sense of where you are? Yeah. Killer. Mm -hmm from which you can disagree and agree. Yep. And I, I can't, I, I think that was such an insightful comment. Yeah. Yes, our faculty members are not sane, but united. So we're mm. united without agreement in every detail. I mean, there are so many different things where there can be differences, but we, we agree on the majors in the confessional statements in terms of where we stand. And we're not requiring that of the students, but we want them to hear where we're coming from. And if we can convince them, great. If not, we want them to be better articulators yeah. of the teachings that they believe that they, they're convinced by. And I think that makes us, I don't know, I, I, I think it makes for a much more rich environment of engagement yeah. theologically. Yeah. yeah. There's, I know this is your guys' school. I didn't even go there, but... Can You've I been there, one? you just haven't gone there. Yeah. I don't know um, so I just there. appreciate I just appreciate you guys letting me be in the conversation. Can I address one really unfortunate mischaracterization? Mm -hmm. And uh it's people will misrepresent and call. We're too active on social media. We hear these all the time. Yeah. So, so I only comes the from gorilla, our it's a it's a gorilla in the room. So obviously we don't agree with this, but what would you say if someone said, Oh, that's the woke school. That's the woke uh, reform school. Because <laughs> they don't fight against all these political strands or like they're not kind of out there trying to take on the agenda, all that stuff. You know, it's kind of intriguing. Um, you know, I, I want to be careful how I say some of these things because yeah. I, I hope to give the the critics the, 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 the benefit of the doubt. I'm sure they're saying this out of some sense of concern yep. about the direction of evangelicalism, maybe yep. even reformed theological circles and the seminary. And if I can be very honest, we hear the opposite as well. Mm -hmm. Not only sometimes <laughs> do we hear yep. that we're progressive, 
we sometimes get accused of being way too conservative, yep. head in the sand, not realizing where things are at. And depends on who's and, criticizing you. That's right. And not to be facetious too much, but mm-hmm. probably being criticized from both ends is probably not a bad thing at all. Uh, but if I can be even more specific to it, you know, we live in an interesting time where everyone desires that institutions like ours or myself as one of the occupants, as both teacher and administrator, that we make a statement about everything that's happening right around us as if, first, we have clear sense of everything. There are certain things that there are boundaries that need to be Mm -hmm. defended as well as clarified, but these are not necessarily those things. And with the political environment being what it is, there is a sense that everyone has to take a posture of some kind, either to accentuate and defend one side or to self-identify with one side. We disagree with that. We are people who recognize that there are 2000 years of church history. And my guess is five years from now, where we thought we were may be different then than it is now. And we are a deliberative institution thinking through some of these things. And we want to take that responsibility wisely and carefully. And so here, I think my direct answer to anyone who criticizes, I I think the criticism you mentioned, Nick, was it's a a woke school, or perhaps on the other side, it's a very much a conservative uh, school, way too conservative for our liking. We just invite them to come by and visit us, uh, Mm -hmm. meet with us, uh, talk to us about it. I think you'll find Uh, on campus, a very thoughtful engagement of not only cultural issues, but certainly with deep heart for theological engagement. And it will be very, very difficult to come away from it thinking that somehow we are um, either marinating in cultural left or right, uh, but simply being uh, trying to be faithful to the word that's been taught to us. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. So last, last few questions. Sure. Westminster is known for a lot of things, but my guess is, and we hear this from professors because we've had them all on uh, and a lot of alumni, and and I know this personally, and you know this personally, it's for no for something, it's probably the biblical languages. Yeah. Uh, and ministry, and people are thinking, well, ministry is hard. I got a lot of responsibilities, got a lot of things to do. How on earth is biblical languages like the thing that's going to make me a bit better minister? Yeah. So. Why does why does Westminster still see the need for languages when all those kind of the saints are kind of crossing off the list from other seminaries are just adding more administration stuff, more elective? So why why does Westminster not do that? You know, there are lots of things we learn in the midst of ministry by experience, and we recognize that there are lots of things that seminaries cannot cover. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you'll be staying in seminary forever if every <laughs> yeah. subject that everyone anticipates in life and ministry. Yeah. And I'm sure there are a lot of students who want to stay in seminary forever. (laughs) Maybe that is true. Um, But if there's one thing that seminaries are supposed to do, and certainly our mission is, we want our graduates and students to be be students of the word. That's our job. Mm -hmm. Our job is that they rightly and carefully divide the word and to teach and proclaim that word well. And in order for us to proclaim God's word well, not only do we have to take it seriously and love it and believe in the authority of the revelation of God found in the word, but also that we have to be students of the word. And student, being the student of the word also means that you know it as well as you possibly can, right? There are things that you can learn from your pastor how to lead a session meeting. But learning about the word requires a lifelong commitment of diving deep into the word. And one of the ways that we believe 
that people have both the knowledge and confidence in the word is to realize that it wasn't given to us in English, mm -hmm. but that there is a language behind it in which God has given it to us. To know the language not only allows us to understand the, the, the contents and the nuances of scripture better, but learning languages also makes us better readers of the word. It slows us down. Um, many of us have read the Bible along the way, but it allows us to slowly read the word, recognizing the care and perfection with which it was composed for us to not only understand better, but therefore with confidence declare the word better as well. So English speakers benefit from learning foreign languages. Bible students benefit from learning the original languages in order to read the word. Now, does it mean that every single day by reading in the original, you're going to come out with some gems? No, that's not our goal. <laughs> not our goal is a very yeah. simple and a modest one. We want experts in the word and requires us to know the languages, the culture, the history of how it was understood and the history of interpretation. All these things are part and parcel of making our students and helping them to be better long lifelong students of the word and we stand by that conviction it still remains for us an important part of prerequisite before they go into the exegesis of the word yeah yeah so this this is my last question before nick's last question it's connected with what i with what i last asked knowing westminster's 40 plus year history where westminster comes from so it's not just kind of its own thing in history but it has a, a long history behind it <clears throat> and before it what is what is Westminster doing if it sees weaknesses in her curriculum? If it's okay, I can strengthen this, maybe pull back on this, maybe emphasize this a little bit more. Uh, we heard from Dr. Troxell, which this comes out in a few weeks. Um, we interviewed him a, a few weeks ago, and this comes out in a few weeks about some of the PT stuff that's coming out pretty soon, some of the changes they're making. So what what's Westminster doing to make sure we minimize weaknesses and maximize our strengths according to our curriculum? Yeah, you know, I... I, you know, I, I don't even know if we should call them weaknesses. We're playing a uh, game. With yeah, weakness is maybe the wrong word, but like things uh, that we were uh, stuff we should major on and then stuff like, oh, that's this maybe a minor point. Yeah. Craig, uh, Dr. Troxell knows this best, especially as the department chair of practical theology in particular. Practical theology is a very difficult one, right? Oh, yeah. It's the convergence of both. Uh, theological acumen with practice in in terms of local church and your faith as well. It's not an easy discipline one can be engaged in. But for us, the best way we can shape and help our students is to bring the best faculty uh, each time. And one of the things that you realize, I think, brothers, is seminaries and churches and denominations over generations often tend to deviate from their core theological convictions. That's been at least one of the lessons of history. And, and we uh, on campus for the last, oh, I don't know, decade or so, we've had a very, very um, attractive name committee called Institutional Fidelity Committee. You know, if you're going to come <laughs> out with a, a committee name, that's, you know, that's about as yeah. as attractive as it sounds. But like parks and recreation why, before was That's exactly that's exactly right. But part of that is because we want to be faithful to our founding principles and convictions in terms of what we uphold. And in doing so each time in each year, we get to analyze and see where things are at and shore up and strengthen where we need to continue to strengthen. But one thing we've realized is it's not just about process, it's about people. Hmm. You know, do we hire the right people with convictions that are shared, 
whose hope is to pass on the teachings of the word well mm -hmm. and to model for them what it looks like. So here, one thing that always we're praying for is that the Lord brings to us um, wonderful teachers, wonderful students, certainly, but wonderful uh, administrators, as well as board members, alums that we can work with in terms of shaping uh, our students and our, our, our future alums as well. And two, we're always looking at our curriculum and how do we improve and upgrade. That involves not just in terms of what we teach, but how we teach it too, right? Mm -hmm. There are pedagogical considerations that need continued upgrading. And then when you uh, recognize what Dr. Troxwell is mentioning, there are things in terms of our practicum, that is our students, I, I don't know if people know this, they actually have to preach in five practicum classes. Yeah. And then what that looks like is you 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 speak for about 20, 20 to 30 minutes. Yep. The faculty then uh, reacts to the message given. <laughs> and then you have the students engage as well. Many seminaries do not have time to do that. Yeah. But this is built into our smaller, uh, uh, what is it, faculty to student ratio of maybe about 10 to 12 to 1 for that reason, so that there is hands-on experience that's taking place. We're modifying some of those practicum courses so that it fits with the genre of scripture to mm. better teach students how to engage in, in, in proclaiming what you're learning from the exegesis classes. So it's tweaking that's going on on a constant basis. And we're grateful for the faculty's not only expert um, experience, but their wisdom in trying to figure these things out. And then when you add to it, we've added a lot of co-curriculars, you know, whether it be just folks who are coming and joining us on campus to teach us their expertise, others who are here, who are meeting to discuss various elements of both theology and practice. These are all shoring up elements that allow us to kind of grow together in terms of preparation for ministry. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And you went good and you, you described well what you guys are putting into place based on goals and hopes and yeah. prayers. So looking more long-term future, can you talk about, you know, the future of West Cal and are there any significant changes uh, incoming students and even faculty could be looking forward to as she, as uh, the seminary educates future ministers for Christ, his gospel and his church? Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that we're excited about as we think through and prayerfully seek the Lord's leading in this is our global engagement. Mm -hmm. um, we have a small project we are calling the Global Church Initiative, GCI in particular, where we are uh, uh, seeking to better understand how we can serve Christ's church that go beyond the borders of our nation. And that's an important part of, I think, what the uh, what we should be doing. Not only that, we send our students abroad so that they experience cross-cultural missions, not only because we want them to be missionaries, which is not necessarily the most desired uh, end game for some of the seminaries we mm -hmm. want it to be, uh, but at the same time, also for them, even if they never become missionaries, to become better sending pastors and church leaders. And I think we think that's very important. One thing that we're real realizing in our present day is many of the changes that are taking place, it's the global South and the global churches that are they're holding the uh, the the uh, the orthodox positions. You mm -hmm. see this in some of the more progressive denominations, whether it's Methodists or Anglicans. It's the global church that's holding it down. And mm -hmm. we realize with many of the changes in the U.S., 
as some of the challenges against Christianity become even more strong, we're not only going to be able to bless our global church by our, our uh, what is it, engagement with them, we fully expect to be even more blessed by the international churches mm-hmm. because of their faithfulness that they pass on to us as well. And so we want to think about that more deeply and well as we engage together. And then when we think about the future of the institution as well, uh, in, in further, we want to be able to think through and be able to uh, uh, participate in the thought process of how do we better prepare for ministry and how do we promote resilience in ministry? You might have noticed that one of the things among uh, pastoral ministry are those individuals who come in and you recognize because ministry can be very difficult. Every job is difficult. There are certain spiritual pressures, however, in ministry that make it very hard for longevity. How do we as seminary uh, help those who are current students and future pastors uh, last longer, continue to grow, and be resilient ministry by the help of the Holy Spirit and the work taking place. And so in that, seminary has a place for continuing education for uh, our graduates, as well as those of our ministry. And how do we, as Westminster Seminary California, engage in those directions, I think will be an important part. And lastly, if I were to just mention one more part, though there are many things that we do want to think about, is how do we engage the local churches in partnership in preparing for our students? It's one thing for them to learn in class, but it's another to be at church where Nick is and practice these things better. And I think we have room to grow in terms of partnering with our churches so that we may have fully equipped men and women who are out there in terms of ability with experience because of not only what they learned in the classroom, but because of their internships, local churches prepared well for Christ church ministry. And that's what we hope to grow in and think further about and deeper about and to be able to contribute more. Yeah, this is great. Well, President Kim, thank you so much for coming on our show, for talking about Westminster, talking about our distinctives, misconceptions, what we're doing, where we come from, where we're going, all this great stuff that I think people are wondering if they think about the seminary landscape, where should I go? Why should I go there? I've heard things about Westminster. We haven't heard things about Westminster. So thanks so much for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. It's a delight. And thanks for the the questions that allow us to share what's going on here. What, one last thing is if you're thinking about ministry, and I realize yep. that every parent talks to their children. I, I have teenagers myself about becoming a teacher or a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. Yep. But it's rare we see churches and uh, parents talk to their kids about becoming pastors and church leaders. And if I can encourage, Hmm. if you even have an inkling or you see and identify young people with gifts in these directions, encourage them to think about ministry as their future. And if you're thinking, come by and visit us. We would love for you to come and see what's going on on campus. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Thank you for this, and um, we'll uh, we'll obviously we've been putting links for Westminster in our show notes. And if anybody wants to reach out, I know there's the travel grant program. You can Absolutely. call and you can reach one of our admissions counselors, whether it be a student or whether it be a administrator or whatever it may be. But yeah, thanks so much for coming on. Talk about the seminary that I love, that I know Nick loves, and and I'm, I hope you love as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, brothers. It was a delight. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed today's episode in our season six introduction to Reformed Theology, where all of our guests 
come from Westminster Seminary, California, either current faculty or alumni who come from and graduated from Westminster and are serving institutions in churches and academies in the U.S. and all across the world where we talk about Reformed theology through the lens of our confessional tradition, Westminster, the Heidelberg, Belgic, and the Cans of Door. I myself am a graduate of Westminster. I'm heavily influenced, obviously, by the institution and love to share this information with those who don't know this tradition as well. Yeah, and myself as a layperson, theologically interested in in Reformed theology, this has been extremely helpful this season and then the previous seasons, the last few years in the book clubs, but particularly the, the focus of this season, whether you're a layperson or not, uh, having all the guests come from Westminster Seminary, California has been helpful and you'll get an understanding of why that seminary has been so influential to obviously Peter, but myself. And most especially, uh, my pastor at my church is a Westminster Seminary, California graduate. Yeah. So if you guys want to find us, one of the easiest ways of helping us out is to find us on Apple or Spotify, whatever podcast catch, but especially those two rate and review us. And if you can share us, share an episode, share a season with your friend, that's, that's usually how we, how we, uh, build our, our crowd.